and welcome to episode number 78 of the Stick to Hockey podcast. It's going to be a fun episode. First, Russ uh, Cohen joins us at Sportsology on Twitter. Russ, do you have a 78 for this I episode? I don't. I'm trying to look it up feverishly because I didn't do my homework. I was doing other homework before the show, so I don't have a 78. How about this former flyer and Las Vegas Golden Knight, Pierre-Edouard Belmar from France. Oh, yeah. I love, I love him. He's a great guy. Yeah, let's go with him. There, well, there you go. Pavel Dimitra as well was another 78. Uh, but let's get to our guest, and I'm so excited to have him on. Uh, our guest in this episode, he hails from, how do you say it, Etobicoke, Ontario? Every American butchers that one. No, it's Etobicoke. I could say it. Okay, all right, you got it. I hear that a lot, though. It's Etobicoke. No. <laughs> yeah. Now, our guest uh, was also once the tallest goalie to ever play in the NHL at 6'6". He played professionally in Italy, the ECHL, AHL, KHL, and, of course, the NHL. And he was the man that kept the king sane for the Rangers. And despite a 60-minute impromptu pre-interview on Wednesday, which we never do, uh, he did agree to come on the show today. Now, his first NHL shutout was against the Flyers as a Ranger. And oddly enough, 10 days later, his second NHL shutout occurred also against the Flyers. So Steve's the brains behind ClearSight Analytics, which is a fantastic site. And he joins the Stick to Hockey podcast right now. Steve, how are you? Well, it's great to join you. You know, Jason, uh, we've talked a lot offline about goaltending. And oftentimes when I get a phone call from somebody that's interested in what I do, it's a former goalie. And I love the set that you have there. And Russ, <laughs> you and I have crossed paths a lot. We, in the past. we haven't really got to work yet, but there you go. Nope. It's going to be, uh, you know, it's great to talk to you guys. You know, this is the virtual world that we're living in now, isn't it? This, this is, is what we're used to. Virtual yeah. happy hour here on a, on a Friday morning. <laughs> it's going to be happy. I have a, a Mike Richter uh, uh, mask up there, too. Now, a lot of people, when they see my stuff, they go, dude, total violation. You have a Richter mask. You have a Brodeur up there. I do have a Bernie, which is good. but Yeah, but unless it's the Richter Liberty mask, I mean, Come that's on, the one you really should. Philadelphia, though. You know, that's I know. You yeah. have to have there. Flower Town yeah. boy, Germantown Academy, and played for Team USA. And of course, won the Cup in 94. And Steve, um, first off, I want to get into exactly what it is you guys do at ClearSight Analytics, because I'm so intrigued by it. Um, I've heard you on uh, other podcasts, including the Ingle Radio podcast with Kevin Woodley, and I took what you had to say on that podcast and brought it to the, the coaching staff that I work with for my youth team, and it changed the way not only we defend, but just as importantly, the way we attack offensively. So let's talk a little bit about ClearSight Analytics and you know, how you guys measure shots and, and how long you've been doing what you're doing. Well, uh, thank you very much. And um, look, I, I'll tell you what, guys, it all started for me uh, just being in the backup role. Uh, in 2004, 2005, we had that lockout year where I was behind Jason LaBarbera in Hartford. And it was uh, a bit of a serendipitous season for me. I hired a sports psychologist for the very first time. Benoit Laird joined the team and unselfishly was our goalie coach for the full year. It was my full year, first full year as a 27-year-old to have a goalie coach with me through a season. Uh, we played a defensive system backed by Nick Fatiu, where he would come into the locker room on the dry erase board, draw a line from the middle of the net all the way up to the blue line, and he would insist that our weak, weak side winger would come down and collapse and be very tight to the net below the hash. And what he would call that was the safety guy. And the <laughs> safety guy really eliminated the pass from one side of the ice to the other. The funny part about this story for me personally was that previous summer I bought my first home. Uh, I didn't work out a lot. It was one of those summers where I was very busy. So it wasn't that I trained differently or I had better coaching or anything like that before the season began. But how do I explain to myself at the end of the season that I go from a career 909 safe percentage to 935 that season? 
what happened that year was profound because that line was ingrained in my head. And now from that point forward, I believe that it was significant if the puck moved from one spot, from one side of the ice across, whether the player carried it or it was passed across. I, again, being a backup goalie and then spending a lot of time watching LaBarbera, I was fascinated with how oftentimes those shots were going in. The pre-shot movement of the pass, really changing everything for the goaltender difficulty-wise. Uh, I later found myself uh, working with Hendrik Lundqvist in New York. And as a, as a guy where you're supporting Lundqvist playing 70 games a year, my sports psychologist was very strong in opinion with me that every time Henrik made a save, I'd also have to make a save. Now, that's important when you're a goalie because we're normally trained through youth hockey to almost want your other goaltender to fail so you get an opportunity to play yourself. Well, this was different because the way it was explained to me was that your unconscious mind can't differentiate wanting something negative on somebody and that negativity coming to you when you ultimately get your chance to play. If I'm thrown in a game, I'm already warm because I've made 30 saves on the bench. But furthermore, I'm starting to look at the game differently. When I see a scoring opportunity, I'm, I'm a little more finely tuned to the game because I would argue that I was the most focused person in that game that was not on the ice. Uh, that's the way I approached it. And then the post-game conversation with Lundqvist, if he gave up four goals, you know, we could have the conversation where I'd say, look, Hank, two of them were across what I call the slot line, the line that goes from the middle of the net, but it stops at the top of the circles where Nick Fatillo's went and extended all the way to the blue line. But we had these conversations. And of course, during my playing career, uh, I, was always, I was always urged by Benoit Allaire to focus more on my game and think outwardly. And I'd have coaches say, you know, you're gonna coach when you're done. It wasn't what I always wanted to hear during career. But this was always something that was on my radar, guys. And it was an exercise that when I go and look back at the experiences I had with coaches like John Tortorella or name your coach, everybody had their own analytics. And what would happen is you come in after the game is played that next morning, there would be a list up on the bulletin board and it would have primary contributor or primary offender on every scoring chance for or against. Now, you could get tagged, Jason, with a minus three in a game. But if you weren't that primary offender defensively in the scoring opportunity, maybe it wasn't even a scoring chance. It could have been a long shot where your goalie had clear sight, should have stopped it, and now you've got a dash one for that shift. You see, I always looked at it this way, and it's been happening forever, but what I, I had to take from that experience was that, oh my God, nobody has ever qualified every single scoring chance for the whole league. We do it for our team. But of course, John Tortorella is not going to watch all 14 games from a Saturday night and then be able to put that together in a database and have a fix. Actually, and, and to stop you there, Steve, John would never talk about the other team anyhow. Like right. that was his thing. If we asked him as the media, he'd be like, you ask them. I'm not talking about the other team. Well, and, and I don't know that John knows the exact plight of the goalie. I know he's an NHL coach, but... Well, he knows if you John some Graham. Yeah, but I imagine, Steve, you had some conversations with him where he was maybe blaming Hank for a goal, and you're kind of going, look, that one's not on him. That's a broken play below the hash marks or something like that, a layered yeah. screen, and, and John seen it, and he saw it, he should stop it, and that's, it's not that simple. No, it's, it, there's, um, that's what I actually, guys, so 
I retire in 2013, 12, 13. And um, I get into coaching. Now I'm working with the Islanders and I'm working in development with their goaltenders, working in Bridgeport in the American Hockey League. That's what I'm seeing every night. I'm now behind the door. Uh, first, I worked at Quinnipiac in the NCAA. So I'm three years into my coaching career. And I understand there's definitely some indecisiveness every morning after the game is played on what his chance was and what a chance was it depending on who the person on your staff is that was qualifying those scoring chances the inconsistencies are wild and that was actually how we first got hired by an NHL team was they wanted to stop the morning debate because if the defensive coach that day was designated to do the scoring chances from the night before it would be completely different than if the goalie coach did it and then the other assistant coach did it. So everybody's got this internal struggle with every organization that can be resolved if you have a company that comes in as a third party and then settles that debate. And, and I knew there was an opportunity in hockey for that. And that's why I wanted to get into this crazy endeavor, which is 350,000 shots later over the last five years that we've analyzed and put a historical- 35 points of data. <laughs> yeah, and it's- Yeah, it's a lot. You know, it's enormous, guys. And But- <clears throat> how would you ever know? How would we ever know how frequently a breakaway goes in in the NHL during a regular season? We know shootouts because those are yeah. all tagged, but you wouldn't know a breakaway, a partial breakaway, yeah. a broken play to your point, Jason. Uh, you know, you can go on and on, but we have 38 uh, chances. We call them chances, not shots, but chances because they have the ability to go in that we qualify and then put into a big bucket. And basically the easy way in layman's terms to understand this is there's an algorithm that has an expected goals value. So after every game that's played, we can say Philadelphia should have scored five goals tonight. The guys didn't finish on their opportunities. They had three. The message from the coaching staff the next day would be simple. Guys, let's keep doing the same thing. That was a good game. And reinforce the right messages. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that goes a long way. You know, it's interesting, Steve, because, you know, it, it, when I played, and I still play like an idiot in men's in beer league, but I always felt like if my, <laughs> if my legs didn't open, like I didn't have to go, the puck didn't cross the slot line, and I don't mm -hmm. have to open my legs, I was always in a better position. I was square. Because as soon as you do that and that much movement, there's a thousand things that can go wrong. There's a bunch of decisions to be made, not only for the goalie, but for the way the defenders defend the situation as well. So what I really like about what you said there, Jason, is that uh, the first time the goalie ever physically has to move, technically has to move, is when the puck goes from one side of the ice to the other. If Russ is coming down the ice on me and I've got him and Jason, you're cutting that slot line and there's no pass there, my mindset is easy. It's fixed on the puck. I don't have to worry about anything else. I'm all in, right? And uh, that changes the game. And But that's not the only transition line on the ice for the goaltender. There's also another line that goes from the back post all the way to the right side of the ice, the hash mark. And there's also the same line that goes from the right post all the way across the ice underneath the left hash mark as it meets the boards. And those are your dead angle lines. Anytime you watch NHL hockey and you see a player skate from the funnel area into that dead angle, you're gonna see a goalie getting back to his post. He moves quickly back out of that area. A goalie comes off of his post. So right, that's so a line. And then the last one's behind the net, fellas. Um, anytime you see a guy go past that midpoint, you'll see a goalie here and then switch. If you understand those four transition lines, you can have a wild offense if you know how to quickly break that line and then bring the puck to the net when the goalie's in transition. So, Steve, um, 
let's say guys are bearing down on you. You are the goalie, and it's a two-on-one. But let's say it's Giroux and Michael Roffle. If, if Giroux's got the puck, what's the odds that even if, he, if you think he might pass, you're not going to worry about Roffle. You're still going to stick with Giroux just in case because you know the guys. That's a great question, and it deserves a great answer. If you're going to know what is out there because you're an experienced enough goaltender and the handedness is important because yeah. if a player's coming down the, the, your right side, the left wing, and he's left-handed, all day long, all day long your defenseman has to protect the middle of the ice there and protect that slot line. And I'll tell you what, guys, if you take – and this is a good one for uh, youth hockey, Jason. If you take your group of defensemen and run a two-on-one drill on Tuesday and just let them do as they normally do, and then the next day, on Wednesday, grab that same group and say, guys, today what we're going to do is we're not going to allow the other guys to pass across this line right here or carry it. You watch what happens to the outcome. Just the mindset alone. You'll see early pressure at the blue line on the entry. You'll see them cave back and protect but not give away too much. They do it just naturally because they have a fixed image in their head to protect. I always look at it this way when I explain it to defensemen. Imagine that's your net. If it goes into your net, it goes into my net. So right. you protect yours and I'll protect mine. And back to Nick Fatio, he, he wanted us as goalies. And LaBarbera and I had this dynamic year together. Uh, he just wanted us out there hugging the puck and just having one mind, one fixed mindset. It helps so much. And it goes a long way for youth hockey. Yeah, the, the term we always use is, you know, and you draw the house you know, from the, the sides and you protect the house, <clears throat> keep everybody out of the house, keep the puck out of the house and it won't get into your, you know, it won't get into your net. And you know, <clears throat> the house is very important. And I was going to say this earlier, but in uh, 2014, we had this summer of analytics, you know, you guys heard about that and uh, Corsi became popular and Fenwick and things, but you got to imagine as a former goalie and Jason, you know, mm -hmm. you know, this feeling, all shots are not created equal. Let's be honest. So you can start marking all you want about uh, it came from the home plate. But unless I know the context of that shot, uh, funny enough, because we were at this pause, um, every day I've got a new project, whether it's with a client or whether it's just we're looking at ourselves internally. Do you know what I'm having a hard time with right now is explaining to teams that it's a low percentage shot when an even man zone entry, so two on two, three on three, or in zone settled offense and OZP, where there's a breakdown and a player steps into the slot area, so home plate, and then shoots where your goalie's got clear sight on it. This year, it went down to 6.7%. Wow. And this is hard for us, guys. It doesn't look good. Uh, five years ago, it's 13 or 14%. Then it went down to 11. Three years ago, it went down to 9.4%. Last year, 7.9%. And now it's going down again. So it's kind of shifted itself from a mid-percentage chance to low. But if I was to ask you guys, and this is my assignment today, thought I'd share it with you. Austin Matthews went into the slot this year 41 times on either an even man zone entry or OZP, settled offense. Got into the slot. He shot 41 times. How many goals do you think he scored? Six. Austin Matthews. Yes, yeah, I'll go with six. I'll go eight. Four. Wow. Lower you know what I mean? Like, come on, yeah. Austin Matthews. And he can yeah, release yeah. it from anywhere, and he can change his and angle. He's deceptive. He's got a yeah. deceptive shot too. Exactly. It almost doesn't make sense. But now, within the context of explaining, instead of saying all shots are created equal, which is really what Corsi does, it measures volume, right? 
-hmm. it was important for me to try and solve quality. And if we're going to talk about any top player in the NHL that you think doesn't have to get that space to have a scoring opportunity, you start to think a little differently about it. There was only one guy, if you can imagine, there was one guy that was the outlier this year and shot 82% from that on clear-sighted shots, and it was Eichel. Movie. It was actually Eichel, Jack Eichel. Oh, wow, Eichel, okay. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> the list was unbelievable. There was, uh, there was two guys, two guys that shot 20%. It was Eichel, and it was Malkin. Wow. And uh, everybody else, I mean, everybody else. Oh, my God, Ovechkin, right here. 28 shots, two goals, 7.14%. Ovi. Wow. Because he scored 32 from his spot. I mean, <laughs> on the power play. you know, his spot's always off a pass. Yeah, right? that's true. Yep. Yeah. It's it's absolutely. Either cross from Backstrom or coming from the point in Carlson. Yeah, it's movement, man. It's movement. But, um, you know, this one, furthermore, when we're looking at the slot area, you wouldn't believe how many shots – roll into the goalie because a guy comes in and he's gets a the defender gets a stick on it just rolls in right now if you look at the other sites out there they're qualifying as a high danger shot i mean i could pick that up with my pinky and my forefinger like you can't do it okay so one of the things that has to drive a goalie crazy but you have to when you're playing you can't visibly show it is and and we saw the video we all watched the video where one goes off of matt niskanen and it goes in now matt niskanen on that play didn't really try his best to block that shot, but he felt like he needed to do something because he was either late getting to the spot or he just happened to be there. What do you as a goalie sometimes tell your defenseman? Because like Sergei Bobrovsky gets mad at his defenseman. A lot of guys do because you're, when a guy goes down to block a shot, he's blocking your vision. And if he doesn't make the block, it kind of hurts you. You guys, um, Russ, are you also from Philadelphia? No, New York. Okay. Long Island, actually. So I, I thought you were, but I know fan. that Jason remembers this, but do you remember uh, Briz? Do you remember Briz? Mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. Trying to forget, but yeah. So throw Briz nuts because it was like playing ping, pinball. No, Briz, he used to yell on the mm -hmm. ice. When he first got there, he was yelling at his defenseman yeah. on the ice. We can hear him. So um, the example that we're talking about where, where Niskanen sticks his knee out, this is where I do like data as far as you guys know what the young guys are like now. you gotta, you got to explain why. Right? Why are we Show doing this? Yeah. And look, Niskanen wants to help out just like every other D-man. He didn't do it you know, on purpose. He's trying to make a save for his team and get the puck down and get it down ice. But I would like to look at the data first, okay? Is Carter Hart good on the clear-sighted shot? What was the data? It was something like 410 clear-sighted shots, like five goals. If you include yeah. the one-timers from above, uh, I think in the data set I set you, I also included the one-timers above the top of the circles. Those yeah. are generally easy saves put off one-timers. You don't have to over-defend if it's a pass from one side of the ice to the other above the top. Give Carter Hart those plays, right? Mm -hmm. We need you to get out of the way. And one thing we don't need to do is ever extend our limbs away from our body to try and help him by making a save because that's where you have problems on clear-sighted shots. Yeah. So I'm looking at Carter Hart, knowing that I'm coming on to speak to you guys. And the one place that he was deficient this year was on broken plays move a another step down because there's different types of broken plays. There's ones that are around the net. There's ones that come from the point. And the ones that are hurting him the most are those longer shots that are sifted in from the point where his defensemen are trying to help him by playing right. goalie. Now, I do agree that if the puck is coming to the defenseman's body, he's able to front, get it down to the ice, and move up ice. It's a great play all day long if it's a sifter from the point. 
And if it's a bomb, if it's a heavy slapper, then, you know, it gets sticks and clear lanes and that would be my approach. But with Carter Hart, knowing that that's the strength of his game, don't do that guys. That's step one. And I would show in a defensive meeting with all of the players, all of the goals that we gave up, there was 15 of them give up. That's a big number of goals. When you start looking at data, show the goals, you'll see a common theme there. Then you don't, you don't really put restrictions on guys, but you have a teachable moment where you say, if it's at the body, let it come. If it's outside the body, let it go. A simple direction like that would go a long way for Philadelphia and their D zone. The only follow-up, Jay, I, I want to give on this quickly is, having seen so many Flyers games, my answer to the broken play, why he's facing so many of those, is because their defense team speed on defense isn't the best in the league. It's probably middle to bottom. They have a couple of fast guys on defense, and then some of them aren't that quick, quick with acceleration, and I think that's why I, we see a lot of broken plays. That, if I'm seeing broken plays, all I have to say about what the data does is it says, okay, now look here, right? If I'm looking at the Philadelphia Flyers, and there was somewhere around 14th, 15th all year long in chances against, which isn't terrible, but no. everybody wants to get better. Everybody right. wants to get better. But what I would do then is then look at if our D zone's 15th, all right, who's in the top five? What right. exactly are they doing? Right. And that's where analytics can help. And uh, it doesn't help any coaching staff unless you can take that next step and get them to the video where they are the master of being able to see it. Steve, the other thing is, is you see uh, the league always adjusts to goalies and the goalies are adjusting to players. And it's a, a, you know, it's a cat and dog, you know, trying to figure out what this guy does. Is he in an RVH? You know, as soon as you get to, to the dead angle zone and, and leaving that top corner and then, play, you know, we're trying to get goalies to stay on their feet and keep their edges a little bit more. Um, how have you seen that kind of change over the last couple of years? Because RVH came in and it was one of those things and everybody was doing it. And perhaps there was overuse of the RVH and RVH fail. You see the hashtag. Um, but are you seeing goalies <laughs> hold their edges more now and, you know, using that safe selection properly, like from, you know, a dead angle situation or pucks behind the net and people go, why is the goalies down when the, when the pucks behind the net? Well, that's the only time in a game when a goalie, turns his back, if you will, or his eyesight away from the attackers and, and where they're, they're not going to score from behind the net, but the guy behind the net with the puck can send it in front where he has to try and kick quick looks just to see where the threats are. So are you seeing more goalies stay on the edges? It's interesting that your viewers actually know what an RVH is without you having to explain it every time. Yeah, so I'm educated. I don't think all of them do. I'll be honest. I don't think all of them do. Okay. Okay. So uh, somebody just said, I liked RVH better with uh, David Lee Roth. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's interesting and what I've seen happen in goaltending is that um, yes, initially, and I can go back to 12, 13. Um, I got brought to Vail, Colorado to work with that really good group that goes up there with Andy O'Brien. I was named the goalie coach. Uh, my best friend, rest in peace, Steve Monador, brought me up there. And uh, I got to go up there for four or five years. It was awesome. And uh, we had guys like Luongo and Jaguar, who, who I knew on a personal level for my playing career. So it was fun coaching them and Devin Dubnik. And uh, one year we had Ray Emery, another guy, imagine, right? Rest in peace. Uh, yeah. Razor was awesome. So he was down in the uh, RVH early in camp. And I'm talking about Crosby coming into the corner and he's already down in it. And I'm saying, Razor, man, are you sure about that? I mean, there's no threat at the net. You should be on your feet right there. He's like, no, I'm telling you over time, this is going to be the play because I'm already down. I'm not going to get beat down in transition. I'm holding my ice here and this is how I'm going to track. I took his word for it. And 
I never bought into it. And the reason why is because you can't move out of it as well as you can move out of being on your feet. Right. When the play comes to the net, and we're talking about for a youth hockey goalie, one stick length away. If the goaltender takes their stick, puts it on the ice, butt end against the post, and then have that stick on the goal line, you can see the distance that that's when they should transition into move. The hard thing about the RVH is you are going up and then you've got to come down. So yes, you've got to transition, meaning if the play is one or two feet below the goal line on a net attack, you've got to get down and use it as a setup instead of using it into a move. If you don't set up into it, you get beat in transition. Last year, the Rangers, it was the night that D'Angelo had a hat trick against the Devils. Mackenzie Blackwood, great goalie, but he made this critical mistake over and over again this season. On attacks that were not threats to the net, he'd go down and just be playing his system on his knees, post to post. Then the pass kicks out quickly. He's late. He doesn't get the ice forward. And there's so much room around him. And uh, D'Angelo had two of his goals that night, just like that. Just being able to go low to high quickly, shot on net. He stuck back on the, uh, not on the uh, goal line, but he wasn't even at the old crease line. He was stuck deep in his blue. So when I ask goalies, when they want to make a decision, because it's their decision. As a coach, you can make suggestions. Goalies, they make the decision. I always feel like if you can move out of the save, it might be something that you can use. If you stop the puck consistently, it could be something that you use. And then are the rebounds going to safe areas? If you can answer those three questions, if I can move out of it, if I'm stopping the puck consistently and the rebounds going to safe places and safe areas, then that's a safe selection that you should be using around the net. The funny thing about the uh, reverse VH though, is you wouldn't believe the amount of time that goalie coaches work on it. Oh, Statistically, it's a, it's a low percentage play unless you defeat yourself, which is probably the reason why you're asking me this question in the first place, because there's a lot of that. Working with Hank, a guy who played the, the most conservative depth in the history of the game, perhaps. Right. And, and, and I mean, his, his rear end basically is on the goal line. Yeah. How, how can you explain his success playing that deep with the way guys have been able to shoot the puck in his career? To me, it's, a, it's one of the most astounding things about him that I cannot figure out other than great reflexes, great play reading ability and all of those things. But it's just amazing to me. I, uh, I marvel at him in a number of ways. First of all, I played with him during his uh, prime years, right? 25, 26, 27. The thing about Henrik is that he has a deeper will than anybody I've ever met, okay? Henrik's not very good at ping pong, but you can't beat him in ping pong, okay? <laughs> He's always got the paddle, just playing defense, just waiting, waiting, waiting until you get frustrated and make a mistake. He does the same thing in goaltending. He plays back. He lets you make every play, and then he bites on you. The thing about him playing deep now is that, statistically, it's the one black hole in his game where when the puck gets into that slot area, he's got the lowest save percentage out of any goalie that faced 700 chances last year. Showing too much net. Showing too much net now. Now. Yep. Now, yes. But back in the day. But now in the late – he's late in the late 30s too, so it's like yeah. – and there's a lot of factors that we don't always know as goalies age, guys. Number one, the eyes, okay? Right. Our eyes age, and there is a reactionary thing in place that maybe was there in the 20s that isn't there in the late 30s, so an adjustment has to be made. But 
Um, as far as his depth and what's always helped him is that the fact that he stays deep on the lateral slot line play, Henrik always comes across on his edges because he has a shorter distance to travel. Yeah. Where other guys are coming across on their knees and are small and can't move as well, he's on his edges for a split second. So on a broken play, he can still move left or right. If you watch Henrik on screens, broken plays, the, the really tough saves that you have to will during a season. Fight for an extra split second of a sight line before the release comes. And Henrik can see the first two feet of that release. And then even if he goes dark, he can build it up and, and, and know where it's coming based on all of the quality reps that he's had through practice because he's the hardest worker I've ever seen. Um, Jason, I was, you know, I told you this on the call that we had the other day. Carolina's weaknesses, as far as what they gave up frequently, Colorado's weaknesses defensively, as far as what they gave up frequently, worked really well with what Henrik's strengths were if they looked at Henrik last year at the trade deadline. They didn't do it, but it would have been a really good fit. And I look at that as a way that I also look at data. What environment that you play in as a goalie sometimes can really suit where you're strong. There's and sometimes, it, right? just, just, just look, we're looking at 38 different scoring chances any given night. And if you get a wide array of what you're not good at night after night, it's cumulative. And you can have a bad season all of a sudden. And then you can blame, you know, the history of the Philadelphia Flyers and their hard-on goalies. Well, maybe it was just a bad plug-and-play for Briz. Maybe it was just a bad plug-and-play for Steve Mason, right? Mm -hmm. So I, that's what I look at. I will say this. I, when I saw Lundqvist for the first time in the locker room this year, he got a lot thinner, which we always see older players get thinner. And I always felt like, even though I thought at times last year, I mean, early in the year, he was spot on. I think his post-to-post -post speed was probably an issue. And I felt like that's probably why he got lighter too, because he needed to sort of adjust for that because of AIDS. Did you think that? Yeah, I did. I did, Russ. That was a good read. I mean, yes. Uh, Hank, Hank, he'll do whatever it takes, man. I mean, that's why I love him. And, uh, if it's, you know, you got to lose 10 pounds for next season to be a little bit quicker, a little more agile, he's going to do it. He's done it. Um, statistically, his season was not bad. Um, right. Two years ago, he played in the All-Star game. Last year, he played in the All-Star game. This year, he had some shining moments. He had some moments where, you know, he had a, he had a few nights that he got pulled that he shouldn't have. As far as, you know, he gave away a win, let's just say, that the team should have won. The hard thing for Hank this year was every time somebody else started, they stood on their head. Yeah. If you goes in there, yeah. the terrific technical goalie guys, yeah. right? Um, but he does not have what Henrik has yet. He can't fight through the screen and find broken plays the way Hank can. He doesn't anticipate like, like Lundqvist does. Not many do. I don't know. I mean, listen, <laughs> uh, if you would have told me 10 years ago, Russ, that 10 years ago had we had this tech and we we're having this conversation, right. I say no way that we don't see Lundqvist and Price win a Stanley Cup at some yeah. point. And now it doesn't look like that's going to happen. I have a hard well, time I, dealing with that. I mean, I didn't think personally, as a, as a media person, I did think the Rangers were going to beat the Kings, but Lundqvist played great. Mm -hmm. I mean, he stole one game that was impossible for anybody to win, and he played great in at least two or three. But I covered the game, the game seven in Pittsburgh that he won, and Mike Lang went up to me after that game, and he said he had never seen a goalie go into Pittsburgh against that team and beat them the way Lundqvist did. And I don't think like the, the Lundqvist haters now, I don't think they gave him credit for it then. But that was, that was something. 
and I got to see it live and it was something. Yeah, look, it's something that we'll never see again. I mean, I can say that now, but maybe we will because Shesterkin's come in and we might have 15 more years of what we just saw by the looks right. of it. Start nine right. and one and playing the way that he's played. Crazy. But Henrik was special, guys. Um, just special. I mean, I could go on all day. Yeah, yeah. Steve, let's talk about that real quick because there's this, there's been this notion in the NHL that goalies need to over ripen. They're not ready till they're 25. Some guys mm-hmm. don't even get to the league until they're like 27 years old. We saw what happened with Bennington. But now you're starting to see some young goalies come in. You saw Sturkin come in this year and have great success right out of the gate. Um, Sorokin's coming over for the Islanders who you're working with. Obviously, Carter Hart came into the league at 20, had some nice success. And uh, I feel like a lot of a goalie's best years are while they're over-ripening. And I was one of those guys that was like, yeah, it takes a little longer. It's different. It's a different position. Um, You're not dictating as a goaltender. You're reacting. So there's a lot more of a learning situation. But do do you feel like that's going to change, A, and B, that they have wasted some goalie's best years in you know in the ahl we've seen a lot of goalies have wear and tear that really affect their play uh look at Corey schneider right Mm -hmm. why does why does mackenzie blackwood get an opportunity because schneider's breaking down right i mean the reverse vh jason it's very hard on the body butterfly was hard enough the butterfly is hard enough right but now we've got moves that are really angular just terrible angle on the hip and knee so much pressure so now you've got opportunity for younger guys. They're still coming into the NHL with some significant wear and tear, right? Our practice. Uh, my generation, um, and again, geez, I'm dating myself, but when I was 14, that was right when Patrick Waugh started to modernize the butterfly. So I would argue that I was really the first full youth to full pro that ever really butterfly. Because when I started butterflying, we didn't even have that pad on the inside of our knee. It was just a leather strap, right? So now back to Mackenzie Blackwood. Why does he have an opportunity at that age? That's part of it. Uh, Carter Hart, same thing. I mean, eight goalies two years ago, right? But the guy's 21, and he plays like he's 31. I I love the way he plays. I use his examples of him all the time when I'm teaching goalies. I think he's technically as sound as anybody. And I know that he's got the background from working with the coaching uh, that he's gotten out, out west. And he's got biomechanics in his background. And he's a student of the game. For anybody that follows Carter Hart on In Goal Magazine, they've had some wonderful articles on him. Uh, I know Kevin Woodley very well. And he tells me all about how he's a student of the game. I would invest in anybody long-term that is a student of the game. I get worried about, like from a management perspective, guys that don't love the game where it's not the most important part of their day every day. I don't know if I want to invest in that guy. Carter Hart is that guy. He's going to keep getting better because he's going to continue to find ways to get better. I don't see anything in his game that hold him back from having a better season next year, and he already had a great one this year, and a better season two years from now. The same way that I see that in uh, Blackwood and the small sample size that I saw him, as well as Shesterkin, Georgiev, the Metro is loaded right now in that. Yeah, we talked about it. It's amazing. When you guys, I mean, you guys, meaning Philadelphia, Jason, when Philadelphia came into Madison Square Garden this year, I remember saying that in our postgame show. I was like, are you kidding me? The Rangers got to face this guy for the next 12 years? Yeah. You know, it's going to be a different Philadelphia-Ranger matchup in the next number of years because of the strength of net. But to answer your question, back in the day, I always looked at it like this. 200 AHL games or a combination of games 
out in Europe, which also are pro games, as development games, and then start your NHL career. Henrik Lundqvist played something like 230 games in Europe before he played his first game at Madison right. Square Garden. Yeah. Devin Dubnik, uh, Braden Holtby, Corey Crawford. Yeah. Look at how many minor league games these guys played. All over 200 games. Yeah, Crawford came in at 27. They've yeah. all had careers, right, guys? Yeah. So is that changing? It is. I think, I think the biggest difference is the health component for the style that you're required to play now to be good. Okay, because Corey Schneider's another guy, well over 200 games in the American League. But now maybe it's just too much. I don't know how many goalies we're going to see in their 30s with this level of stress on their bodies. Maybe that's why we're going younger than anything else. It's just health. Well, yeah, I'll so, give you two things. Sorry, real Dad. quick on that, Russ. I, I saw yeah. a study um, that when a goalie goes into the butterfly, it's four to five times his body weight uh -huh. that transfers from his knees into his hips. And then, Steve, you couple that with the – you know a post integration like an RVH where you're really leaning over on that hip yeah, and it's, totally. it's an awkward position to be in. You look at a guy like Jonathan quick and the, you know, the way he's played the game. Um, I imagine when he's 50 years old, he's not going to have the goalie wobble. He's going to be on a goalie cart. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know, man. I know. And, and quick oftentimes said that I've heard him on interviews in the past, especially when he was winning the cups, he was saying, no, no, no don't play like me. Yeah, there's no, a that's, price. that's the way he knows how to play. Yeah. Right. Highly competitive. He's got that Henrik Lundqvist will. And that's the way these guys are going to play. They're going to go all out. But I could go back to my junior career. Um, names that you wouldn't remember. Mikel Padolka, Jeff Finley. These guys Finley, were, I remember. Remember him? Yeah. Finley was a first-round pick. Yeah. Right? But, Russ, he went to the splits on every save. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he was a great brutal. goalie. Yeah. He was a great goalie. Uh, Nashville picked him in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. And should have played in the NHL, should have had a 10, 15 year career. But I remember being a Sudbury Wolf OHL goalie and just watching these guys go in splits for no reason. Like, no way this guy's going to be doing that for long. And they never made it. I think part of being a goaltender and trying to have longevity, besides the fact that when you get off the ice, you should immediately get in a cold tub, you have to be careful of how many times for no reason do you just go to the default split. You've got to be careful. I'll give you two things. The first one is we're starting to see that they're easing up on some of these goalies in practice because they're facing X amount of shots in practice. I've noticed that. But with Blackwood, I learned a little inside intel because I was impressed with Blackwood in, in juniors, but really impressed at the combine. There's very few guys that could ever impress me at the combine, but he was a physical freak. And when he was on the long jump, I was just like, oh, my God, this guy could almost be like an Olympic long jumper. Wow. But he – but what I noticed was he would always be sort of instinctual in juniors and he was very instinctual to come into the league. And the Devils worked hard with him apparently in the last year to learn some of the things that you're talking about. So I think when you're seeing some of those warts, his game was really good this year, but I think it's because he still doesn't know all of that yeah. because he didn't have to employ all of that in, in junior hockey and the Devils had to put him in early because they didn't have anybody. So he is sort of learning on the job. You know, what's really cool Russ, is, uh, when you're scouting somebody, it's pretty neat to see somebody that's explosive, right? Yeah. You can't right. teach it, guys. It's genetics. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I'm 6'6". Yeah. Six, six, no, he's a physical freak, man. You know? Yeah. I mean, you have it or you don't. Now, what you can teach, okay? So we were speaking earlier about uh, net play. That's the easiest thing to teach. You can teach – I can teach a monkey how to stop pucks around the net just using the RVH and net play. Now, 
you need a little bit more time to learn how to move off of a pass from the RBH. And I'll give you an example. No matter what pass that the goaltender has to track, they have to load to go. And, and a lot of us think that loading means load up that push foot to go this way. Well, really it's not. It's actually having balance and then getting your head over your leading knee and then tracking the pass as it gets there. And then because of the speed of the NHL pass, you've got to beat it at the last part of the pass. So you've got to be on it because if you go early and it hits something and you get a broken play, you're in trouble. If you watch it and let it get there and you're late, you're in trouble. You have to know how to track a pass where a lot of goalies have difficulty. And again, I noticed this with Blackwood this year. He has to do a better job of tracking the pass out of his reverse when it goes to the top. Now, what you do in that instance is if I'm on my left post and I'm over it right now and the puck comes, it's really important for me to track. And then now what happens is my left skate separates about a foot and a half from the post. And now you're already on your way there. And then you can get to the top of the paint quicker where a lot of guys make mistakes is they're on their post and they lift up automatically and then go. You keep the chin and down. Those are, that's a massive delay that you don't have time to get, get the t uh, proper depth that you need to make a save there. And every save is always about angle, depth, squareness, movement. If you don't have the proper movement, meaning tracking the pass, those other three, three things don't even matter. So you can train that, though. If you have the right Look guy Dubnik. coaching your goalies, you can do it. You yeah, know? Dubnik's a guy yeah, that Dubnik's has cited head trajectory for, you know, really kind of turning his career around. Time, yeah. 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 I mean, that was a big a part. guys don't even know about it, but they're doing it intuitively. But when they get jammed up in a tough part of the season, they don't know how to get it back. Yeah. The neat thing about really knowing your game, and that's why I'm talking earlier about student, become a student of the game. You know, uh, one of the kids I work with uh, locally, Strauss Manny, plays University of Michigan. Like, my next Zoom call is going to be with him and his coaching okay. staff because he took all of his video from this season and he has a few questions and he wants to work through that's it awesome. before we get on the ice. No, that's You're loving that, aren't you? <laughs> no, that's who this. And all the kids that make it now do the most work off the ice. This is yeah, not yeah. something that begins at practice. And everybody yeah. that's watching that's a youngster has to understand that. Well, the one thing I have to ask you about is Jordan Bennington because <laughs> Jason's a hater. And we had Craig Berube on, and I had to avoid the fact that Jason's a Bennington non-believer. Look, I, I knew about him in juniors, and I always was dumbfounded how he got lost in the St. Louis system. But I knew they fell in love with Jake Allen, and that was after that happened, that was a part of it. But end of the day, how do you evaluate Bennington? Okay, do you want me to start with uh, company statistics? Whatever you want to yes, use. Yes, yes. Let's well, go with data there. and then uh, the eyes. Because what, what Jason doesn't want to hear right now is safe percentage, wins and losses, and goals against average, right? Um, so Jordan Bennington, right now, if I was going to pick my list for the Vesna, where would you guys be? Am I putting you on the spot here? Where would you guys be as far as Vesna goes? Because we know Vesna is wins, yeah. games played, it's safe percentage. Who do you guys think is possibly in the top three between the two of you guys? Well, I got Hellebuck number one. Yeah, me yep. too. Yep. I mean, I don't even think it's close because he lost his whole stinks. decor. <laughs> he lost yeah. Bufflin, yeah. Tyler Myers, and and he's, a, and he's a 24 GSAA. So that was so he was definitely number one. Um, number two, I actually probably would put Bennington too because especially after speaking to Barubi, the wins right. what he's about, getting the uh, two, getting the job done. 
Jason, what are you thinking? Rask? Are you thinking? Well, I love Rask, but I but I know his environment's good because when I see both the starter and the backup, and I know I know Halak's a good player as well. I know the environment's good when both goalies are at the top in a lot of deep right. goaltender analytic categories. So I know that's a good environment, but but that shouldn't prohibit you from being a Vesna winner. Um, but but I, I would say absolutely Hellebuck is my guy, considering the environment and everything that he accomplished this year. I look at Tuca for sure. Yeah, Rask uh-huh. would be third on mine. So that's where we are with CSA, right? Because we uh, value for the environment that you play in. And when you put that into context with the amount of work that you had, so how many chances did you face? How difficult were those chances? Top list is Connor Hellebuck. He would be CSA's Vesna Trophy winner. Yeah. Markstrom, Jacob Markstrom. Yeah, he's yeah. had a great year. Silent but deadly this year. Yeah. Right? And if not for maybe uh, his stock probably quieting a little bit down the stretch with his injury. Right. Um, Tuca is third, and fourth is Jordan Bennington. <laughs> Jason. So Bennington <laughs> is in there. Know. Do you want to know why, Jason? Because he faces a lot of difficult shots that yeah. we don't give him enough credit for because we yeah. think Stanley Cup contending team again right. they won a year ago. Big D, stay-at-home Western guys on the on the backside. No, it's he faces a lot, guys. And, and they uh, lost Bowmeister. That was a big deal. Exactly. No, huge. And um, no, so he was there. Um, and that's looking at expected goals against. And that's a good way to see everybody that's played uh, enough games. And the way I look at it is this year, because of the shortened season, 700 scoring chances is a pretty good number. Chances. We're not just talking yeah, all shots. Yeah, it's yeah. chances. So you start to get a pretty good divide. You, you get rid of the backups. You get rid of the guys that haven't played a lot. Um, but I thought it was interesting. And another, <clears throat> another thing to look at is expected save percentage. What should your save percentage be on the array of shots that you face? And, um, you know, I've got my second screen here. And I pulled this for you as well. But Rask, actually, you're right. He's got a good environment, but he performs exceptional hockey mm-hmm. in a good environment. Was he like and plus four, Steve? It's Brodeur, right? I mean, it's yep. Brodeur. Yeah. Brodeur was awesome in a great environment. It's not for well, everybody. But that was always the... Who okay, was never so good in that environment, right, Russ? Going back right. to that. But, but growing up in New York, especially on the island, the argument was always... And I fell for this probably as, you know, like a 20-year-old. Yeah, Brodeur's got the best defense in front of him. But then as I started to cover the game and all those guys left... When Brodeur, when they made it to the Stanley Cup, it was right. one of his best years because he had nobody in front of him. Colin White was like his best defenseman. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because as much as we're talking about Vesna stuff, uh, there's only been one goalie that's won a Stanley Cup in the year they've won the Vesna since 0405, and that was Tim Thomas in 2011. And he's yeah. an outlier, guys. I mean, he won a, a Calder, yeah. a Vesna, a Cup, first-team All-Star. He did everything. And um, there just hasn't been a lot of that. And I wonder well, where there's no going. more standing on your head. If I hear fans say one more time, you have to stand on your head through the playoffs. There's no more of that because guys are so good. The studying so good. The breaking down is so good. There's yeah. no more goalie carrying you through the playoffs. They're very, I, you don't see it anymore. You know what I, you know, what's funny, Russ is, and I agree with you, but a goalie that's not playing well will unravel the best of teams. Sure. Uh, yeah. And it's that's unbelievable. True. And you I talk it about it all year. the time. Oh, my God. I mean, anytime I go to the bottom of our list over here, it's like every non-playoff goalie is at the yeah. bottom of the list. Yeah. And 
you know, I'm talking about Jimmy Howard, Devin Dubnik, as much as I love him, he just didn't have a good year. Uh, John Gibson, Carter Hutton, all the guys that didn't, these are guys that could have got their teams in this year, right? Although early in the year, Gibson was killing it. I think something happened. Well, the team's not year. He was awesome last year. Yeah, so and he was, was awesome last nobody year. Nobody faced more high danger chances than him last year, right, Steve? No, yes, 100%. I was shocked to see him yeah. drop this year. Um, yeah. But, you know. He's overcompensating. Uh, it's kind of a neat way just to go apples to yeah, apples. Yeah, yeah. If you're doing it the same way for everybody, you get a good look at what the league's doing. And I think it's the, I mean, it's the only way that I see it possible. And that's why I enjoy the whole process, guys. Yeah, yeah, we love it. When your environment's consistently a mess, then all of a sudden you lose as a goalie. You start to lose what you do. You're trying to do too much, and then you're in real trouble. So let's talk about Bobrovsky, because he signs the uh, $70 million deal, Steve, and his underlying numbers uh, at ClearSight Analytics are not good. Yeah. Um, and I know the environment's not great. Sometimes a goalie going into – look, a lot of people say goalie goes and see puck, stop puck. The system shouldn't matter. There's a lot of communication, how to handle screens, what side he, you, know, you want the guy to, to try and block a shot. Is it short side, long side? All of those things. And there's a lot of communication things that have to take place. But he never really got into a rhythm this year. He's explosive. Um, but is he more of a product of John Tortorella in Columbus? Or will Bobrovsky bounce back? Uh, you know what makes Bobrovsky's situation look worse is uh, how well Drager played. You know, right. Yeah. You know, yeah, because people again, forgot about him. Yeah, you're right. He was Drager. great in juniors, and then he was just yeah. a backup forever. And all of a sudden, Quenville was like, I'm using him. I'm choosing him over Bobrovsky. And I was like, wow, I can't believe this kid's time is going to win. But this is bad for Bob. Yeah. Maybe speaks a little bit to what Bennington does a year ago, where teams are saying to themselves, look, it's about the win. It's not about reputation. If we made a mistake on a contract. Now, I'm going to ship. I've got a dry erase board over here, and I was looking at this earlier. Yeah, computer screen here, second screen here, dry erase over here. Nice. this is something that I always want to look at because I want to know what the environment is that everybody plays in. And, and think about the goalies that took a lot of heat publicly this year for having off seasons, right? Yeah. Okay. So expected safe percentage, um, ranking the NHL's toughest environments, minimum 700 scoring chances again. So we get rid of the uh, backups. Hardest place to play for a goalie this year, uh, Washington, Braden Holpe. No kidding. Second, Lundquist, and we're just talking about the goaltender. You know what else is funny, guys, is uh, looking back on my playing career, there's times where you're in a season with another guy, and you're head-to-head. You're both 920, you're on the same team, and he has a couple of real easy games, and you have a couple of really tough games, and then he goes ahead of – is he having a better season than you? Or, you know, it's tough to measure, right? So it's very interesting to take the goalie out and just say, look, when he was in net, he had tough against him. Number three was Jones in San Jose. Fourth hardest environment for a starter was Bobrovsky. Fifth, Carter Hart. Wow. Yeah. yeah there were a lot of breakdowns in front of Carter Hart, and that's what I was getting at earlier. Yeah. And so I'm not shocked at that. Yeah, so that, that was. A lot uh, of that may have been from the beginning of the year, too. Yeah. Yeah, it got better. It definitely got better. All encompassing, right? Everything that yeah. he faced. But apples to apples, 700 chances. His yep. chances were hard. He didn't yeah. have easy chances, right? They're not all created equal. Uh, so I thought that was looking at Bobrovsky this year, though, guys. I mean, I don't know. I was shocked. I mean, why so low? And <clears throat> why the gloves so high? Yeah. And then getting beat under. And just, he's a, he's another one. Spread and you yeah. know, you see it. 
we, we got to know him a little bit in Philly. And the one thing I got to know about him, and I also knew about some of the stuff he would say in Russia, and I'd find that out. He also depends on his defensemen and the communication. And I don't think Florida's got a lot of rock-solid defensemen there. I mean, I think they've overvalued Matheson. I think Ekblad's starting to bounce back from the concussion, so he's certainly fine. But, you know, you Keith Yandel's a floater. Like, there's not a lot of guys that could really help him either. Is he not a fit for what they do, Steve? Um, he's got to look at that. Yeah, I do have to look at that. And it's interesting because when I look at everybody's um, scouting report, it's all of the shots they face broken down by shot type. And it's always interesting for me, and I'm not going to do it while we're doing this live because it just looks bad, but – if I'm looking at the team that he's playing for, what they give up the most, and then what that goalie's strengths and weaknesses are, if I looked at it last year before they went into the season, it would be interesting to see if they were able to make those adjustments. What we're talking about here, though, guys, is that I think the public forgets the fact that a goaltender is always reading off of his own players more than he's reading off of what the offensive players are doing. If Bobrovsky is very comfortable, Torts plays a great system. I play for Torts. Very he defends up, right? Mm-hmm. And you get clear reads. You know where plays are coming from. You know what the options are. You're not doing crazy math while you're trying to read a play and see somebody step into the slot. Whereas things are a lot more wide open in Florida. I think a lot of the reason why is, too, is you don't get attendance there. There's a lot of light nights. Yeah. You know, it's loose hockey. You're not playing that playoff atmosphere. That human side is always going to be a factor that's very difficult for us to articulate, but it's there. And um, I think that when I look at what happened in Florida again this year, it was loose play. I mean, it's there. You watch the games. He faced the most breakaways in the league. He still had a good save percentage on breakaways, but he's he's facing the most massive breakdowns. And then what happens oftentimes, and uh, you can go from New Jersey this year with Schneider at the beginning of the season when they weren't playing that bad. John Hines was doing a good job. Yeah, uh, he couldn't get a save. He got fired. Uh, what was there, seven or eight coaching um, yeah. replacements this year? Every one of those goalies was at the bottom of our list. Yeah, you know no the goalie. coaches. Yeah, without this data helping them to support them a little bit, I think they could go a longer uh, tenure in each place. They were playing well, but yeah. a goalie will unravel you. And in um, in Florida, if you don't get a save by your goalie, this is the other side of the coin. If you don't get a save on a clear sighted shot. Well, what, what happens next? Matheson, Yandel, yep. Ekblad. They all start to go and close a little bit sooner. Yeah. Well, the bigger passing lane opens up. And now, where are you? You know, I'll never forget seeing this one game when I first retired. I was looking at a lot of video, and Ryan Miller was still in Buffalo at that point playing against Boston. The puck drops off the faceoff, two-on-one. Miller's out challenging. The slot line's not protected. The pass goes through back of the net. 16 seconds later, it's the best example of all time. Two on one again. Oh, man. I know where he's going. He's going to that back post. Miller (laughs) plays deep because he doesn't trust the pass is going to get cut. The guy rips him short side shelf. (laughs) He looks like the idiot, right? Right. That is the perfect microcosm of a lot of failure within – team structure and system. It's See, now, the, the, the interesting thing, Steve, at the draft, when Florida took Spencer Knight, people were like, why are they doing that? They had Bobrovsky for the next X amount it. of years. Yeah. And I kept saying, look, you always have to have organizational depth. Now, mm-hmm. they may look like geniuses yeah, if Bobrovsky's day. game is, has fallen <laughs> off. You know, Spencer Knight could turn pro in a year or two, and, and that could change 
everything, and then all of a sudden they have a dead contract. But that could when you have holes on a team, though, it's like the Eagles drafting Jalen Hurts. When you have holes on a team and you just signed a guy to a $70 million contract, you don't draft in the first round redundant. You know what, though? Redundant. Again, but again, now we're looking at it. If we're talking the same time next year and, and Bob has well, to eat the contract? Well, something's going to happen. You ain't going to Spencer Seattle Knight, with that deal. Because <laughs> Spencer Knight will either be playing in the AHL or being the backup, and he'll end up showing him up. The backup won't do him any good. special, too, fellas. Yeah. Yep. So uh, Special, special. Somebody I've never seen like that at the age that I saw him for the first time. As a 14-year-old, I was like, man, this guy's yeah. ready to play now. Yeah. I was shocked how good he was. And, yeah, yeah he's going to have a tremendous career. With you, though, Jason, I was surprised after giving Bobrovsky the money, they went that way. Yeah, um, but maybe uh, they're a little bit gun shy right after the ink dried. Yeah, I bet they are. Hey, Steve, let me ask you a couple goalies that are getting up there in years, um, and to see what they have left. And, and I look right out at Vegas, and I look at a guy like Mark Andre Fleury. His underlying numbers have not been good this year. Perhaps one of the reasons why they swung the deal to grab some insurance and good insurance in Robin Lehner. Uh, but look at a guy like Fleury. He's he's been tough on his body. He's been light on his body. He's a thin guy, but. Um, he's a guy that's had to, you talked about it earlier, has to travel a lot of real estate for a lot of those saves over a lot of years, very explosive in that way. Uh, but it comes at a cost. I think he's 36 now. W what's the future for a guy like Flurry? Is, is he coming down to the end? It's amazing how it's not supposed to go like this. It's not supposed to be that you're at the top of your game and you fall off a cliff, you know, there's <laughs> a gradual descent. And, uh, for whatever reason in the, Final, I want to say four months of what we just saw as a season, there was a off the cliff drop. Yep. I don't think that's what we're going to see again for next season with him. Um, he's one of the special guys. I mean, over all of the years that we've been in hockey, and you look at a Lundquist, Price, Brodeur, Marc Andre Fleury's up there, Luongo, the older guys find a way um, yeah. through he's their ahead. careers when they're special. Like these are special goalies, right? They're the they're the elite of the elite over the last 10, 15 years. They always find a way. Luongo was still pretty darn good the last two, three years of his career. Yeah. Um, and that's why Lundquist is still playing, in my opinion, at a high enough level to help somebody. Flurry will help somebody. However, I thought it was a great move by Vegas to bring in uh, Robin Lehner because Lehner's at the top of our list on everything. Clear-sighted shots, locked in. He's He could have get – I thought when they made that move – that was the move that was going to give Vegas uh, the upper hand in the West. I thought, I right. thought so. That was the one thing they had. They have an unreal, like, top five offense as far as the way we qualify scoring chances. Top five in chances against. They weren't getting enough saves. Right. You put the goalie in there, I'm like, that's a cup contender right now. So, yeah. uh, a lot of people but they thought they still get a chance worried. to show that. Yeah. yeah. They just have the opportunity. And, well, maybe we'll get to see something here. And yep. if we get 24 teams back, that would be terrific, you know, because, yes – uh, Vegas will have a chance, a better chance with Laner in the net. Um, the only reason why Robin Laner, let's face it, he's not going to get a long-term deal until yeah, people history. look past all of what they're talking about publicly. Yeah, because that was the whole holdup with the Islanders. He wanted like three years. They didn't want to give him three. They didn't believe enough. They, they only wanted to give him two. He's still looking for three from somebody. Yeah. And he, he may get it after the year he had in Chicago and Vegas, though. I mean, his numbers right. may not have been, you know, his GAA and his, you know, save percentage may not have been what it was on the island. Consider the environment, what he had to deal with in Chicago. It's far different. I think he was even better in Chicago. You got to remember, his dad's a goalie coach. His dad worked with Lundqvist over in Sweden. Like, his, his dad's a big help. So funny, going back to the time that I was with Henrik, 06, 07, um, Robin Lehner's dad was in our locker room a lot. And yeah. 
Henrik would explain to me that, yeah, there was a younger, you know, his, his younger son, he used to act as a guinea pig and he'd be trying all this stuff out <laughs> and try it with me. And that's, and he, Henrik raved about uh, Robin Lehner's father helping him with mindset and yeah, having wow. his focus channeled. And I can see that with Lehner a lot. He's very good on the clear-sighted shot. And uh, goalie's goalie you, right there. You need that. You need that in the playoffs, guys. You can't have your goalie unravel you by getting beat clean off the wing. You yeah. know, and that's the amazing thing about the stats too, is looking back in the last couple of years, any game where a goalie allows a low percentage goal against, so that shot that I'm talking about off the wing could be a little wraparound. All of those goals add up to an 86% chance to lose in the event your goalie gives one of those up in a game. Oof. Yeah. The whole it's funny, um, last year we were watching uh, Game 7, uh, Boston against uh, Toronto. Toronto's a client, and uh, um, Anderson uh, gave Freddy. up. Yeah. Freddie gave up the uh, dead angle goal in the first one. Oh. I call my business probably, oh, here we go. 86% chance to lose. You know? <laughs> Pack up your <laughs> stuff, boys. You can leave the barn now. Yeah, anecdotally, it's pretty funny to be in stats too, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's always outliers. Hey, Steve, last thing, and, and I appreciate you giving us so much time today yeah, we and so it, much Steve. to think about. Um, but I was having this debate on social media, and I love debating on social media because everybody's so rational, right? Yeah. Um, don't do that. No, don't. No, he, he embraces it to a point where he shouldn't, but he does. Yeah. Well, look, it's part, it comes with like the Like to game. embrace the crazy. Okay, Jason, I got yeah. you. I'll, uh, come after it, you I'll come out of the weeds on you now that I know that. As a 20-year veteran of doing talk radio, yeah, I guess you have to because it, it comes with it. But um, the debate, and it came because I was watching the 19, was it 94? Yeah, the 94 game with Brodeur and Hasek, the 70-save shutout. Uh, for Hashik, um against the uh, Devils and Brodor, I think had 54 saves in the game. But the top three goalies of all time, it's something that's so debated. Um, mm -hmm. Who are your top three? Because a lot of people put Hashik there because when he was dominant, I mean, and he was for a long time, hence the dominator, he was unbelievable. I, w I go Marty, but again, environment go gets put into that equation. Uh, and then there's Patrick Waugh, and then there's obviously some others. But like modern, uh, who are your top three? Patrick Waugh, for sure. Uh, if I had a game that I had to play and my house was on it, I'd want Patrick in the net. He's the he big was, game goalie, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm a biased uh, to him too because he's the guy I patterned my game after. I worked with Francois Lair at the same time that Patrick was working with him, and then I got to work with Benoit Lair. In fact, my first experience as a goalie student was at Francois Lair's house. I watched – it was game four. It was a, it was a sweep. Colorado in – was it 96? Uh, mm -hmm. Colorado beats – Florida it was four yep. zip right we were watching game four at his house and Zach Burke another goalie that Russ would probably know from yeah, the yeah I remember the name and uh we we're watching the game with them and we're taking notes and you know you're 18 years old and that's an impactful moment you're yeah. sitting with the guy that just watched the guy win a Stanley Cup and Zach and I are like man this is awesome you know <laughs> and we're, we're we're both hockey nerds like self-professed yeah. right um Zach's goalie uh, development coach in uh, Arizona. So, yes, number one, I have to go with my guy there. Uh, Lundquist, again, now I'm going to get into the bias conversation. How could I not choose him when I've seen him operate? Now, fellas, this is what he's like in the locker room, okay? We could have a great night the night before, dinner, a little wine, whatever. But the next day when we've got practice and Henrik takes the laces of his pads and he puts them through the eye holes of his skates, we're about 15 minutes before we're supposed to be on the ice at that point. I know it's time for me to shut up. 
stop talking. Because yeah. this guy's already getting ready for practice. We go out for 30 minutes with Benoit Lair, and he's out there just dialed. And it pushed my level up to a new work ethic, a new will, and a new compete. Go through practice. At the end of practice, I'm dead. He's out there still taking breakaway after breakaway after breakaway. We used to go to the shootout back in those days, guys. We knew we were winning with Hank there. Like, yeah. it, was, it was every night. So I saw behind the scenes, not just the, the, the image of Henrik, I think a lot of times gets lost because he's a good-looking guy and he wears nice clothes. Furthest thing from the truth, guys, like he just wears nice stuff because he wants to feel like he's business and that's his mindset and he's going in. We had an experience where we opened in Prague against Tampa Bay. I think it was uh, 07. And uh, we had to wear Reebok tracksuits getting off the bus. And it was an exhibition game against the Rus Russians. We played against Magnitogorsk. Henrik has a bad game. You know, after the game, he's like, this is bullshit. I'm not wearing this tracksuit anymore. <laughs> I'm to wear this tracksuit. So well, back to Versace. <laughs> yeah. Now the next game, next game gets back in the suit shutout. You know, it just plays <laughs> awesome. So it That's was just great. Everything was about the mindset. It wasn't about what you might see on the outside. It was, it was between his ears, and he's so strong. And are you guys familiar with his Game 7 records over the oh. years? Oh, yeah. Well, I covered one of them, and actually I covered two of them. So, yeah, and look, guys, no, not for nothing, but back in the day when I was there, 06, 07, 7, 8, 8, 9, 9, 10, they had no business some of those years getting in the playoffs. I mean, no business. I remember coming it. home to our apartment. My wife would be, you know, Steve, you playing tomorrow? I'm like, do you have any idea who I'm playing with right now? This guy's like <laughs> stealing everything for us. It's unbelievable. Although so, I'll tell you, Steve, I wrote about, because I was in both locker rooms after the 2010 loss, and I went to the Rangers locker room first, and I knew that Torts was playing that game to play for the shootout. But it was a bad idea because Lundqvist had a bad knee and it was really – it had gotten to the point where I think it was hurting him. And he probably would never have wanted to admit that. But after yeah. that game, he was so broken up because, you know, that was one of the shootouts he lost. Like, he yeah. almost never loses. Never, never. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so at any rate, I mean, guys, he'd be in there for sure. Number three for me, man, I love watching Roberto play. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm speaking more to – Marty, the hard thing about Marty for me is, and I, and I love the excellence and everything they did. I loved his, I liked the fact that he was loose enough just to believe in himself, where I heard stories from Jim Ramsey, our trainer in New York, about before the gold medal game. Uh, Marty, heat pack, heat pack, cup of coffee, take a sip, stretch, stretch, go out, win. Like, yeah. there's nothing to it, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and most of us are juggling and doing a million different things, making a thousand different saves before we go out there. Marty's uh, as simple as it gets with approach, but then enjoying – I wish I could have enjoyed the game yeah. with Marty. Yeah. A lot of us do. There's so much press, uh, pressure, stress, anxiety to deal with that Marty did it the right way. But I'll tell you what, I was happy when he retired because he's very difficult to explain from a technique standpoint to a young goalie. Oh, oh my God, yeah. So I started running my goalie caps 0405 after I had that really good experience in Hartford that we began this conversation with. And I have young goalies in the camp that are fans of Marty and they're trying to have me explain Marty to them. I'm like, I, I mean, the guy's chucking two-pad stacks and doing oh, it. Oh, yeah. Good luck explaining that to a young goalie. Yeah. It's a lot easier to copy price. It's a lot easier to copy Carter Hart. Yeah, technical aspects. Well, like, the thing, so about, the thing about Marty. Marty I, 
I have a lot of respect for Milano too. I started with him. We uh, were in the Islanders organization at the same time and got to know him well and all the respect in the world for him too and his approach. Yeah, Marty too. He was so economical in his movements. It was just, it wasn't like, hey, in certain situations, I don't got to go post to post hard here. I'll just turn and get there because I know when the threat is real. So he, he was economized his energy better than anyone. Let's face it, he wasn't the most physical specimen in the world. No, but he did get, he did figure out how to train middle of yeah. his career. He didn't train hard at the beginning. Played a lot. Away. Yeah. yeah. He, he barely wore even any equipment. He was the only guy not cheating. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Everybody was cheating. Oh, I already yeah. had these small pads. I remember being in the uh, goalie union meeting one year when we all got together and they were talking about bringing the, uh, the equipment sizing down. And Marty's sitting there and, you know, he's like, I don't know why you guys need all that extra padding above your knee, right? Because guys have like stacks this high above yeah. your knee. Plus fours. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, pretty sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure the NHL targeted Lundquist with the risers and, and his. Yeah. But I don't, Hank. He didn't feel like it at the time, but I can say that he spends a lot of time on his knees in the locker room with his gear on, checking his five hole, yeah. you know, just being sure there's no crack. Yeah. He spends a lot of time down there. He's always looking, looking, looking. And that was also stuff that I really appreciated as, you know, as teammate, because yeah. Yeah. the media is never in the locker room before practice, coming after. So yeah. There's a lot you miss and not a lot I miss now. I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm in the same, same role. Yeah. And, and yeah. J.S. Jaguar and Garth Snow with the shoulder pads. Like, come on, man. No, he killed it for all of us. Totally. Totally. It yeah. was bad. You tall goalies killed it for me, Steve, and you're one of them. Six, six. You were ahead of your time. Did people, well, when you were growing up and really? playing peewee, think you were a freak at, at your height playing goal? I wasn't even supposed to, uh, you know, play because everybody said that Valakat has a seven hole, not a five hole. Right? <laughs> you think about it, back in those days, come on, 80s, 90s, everybody was smaller. Everybody I used to that. bitch about in the 79 playoffs, well, before the playoffs, the 79 Rangers season, I was bitching about JD about his five hole, I admit it. <laughs> oh, so I had a great conversation with JD a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've been doing these shows for MSG. And I wanted to talk to JD about the fear factor of playing back then because um, when Steve Marnor, my best friend, passed away, I um, talked a lot with Ken Dryden as he was writing his book, Game Change. Oh, wow. Yeah, book yeah. Great book, by the way. You guys, have you read it? Rob? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I haven't read it. I passed it the other day in, uh, on Kindle, though. I was number one for like a day, and I was really happy. But no, I should read it. You should because there's a lot that can help all of us understand the conversation of what could help the game. And uh, Ken really lays it out in the final couple of chapters. But uh, it's a great story about Steve. It's a terrific book. But uh, So I spoke to Ken a lot. So we spoke one day about uh, stand-up style. And he said, Steve, you got to understand, this was out of safety. Like, the further we came out, the smaller the net was in front of us because that's the way I coach now. I'm always explaining to the goalies, just like we talk about the slot line, there's a mindset there. There's a mindset when you're playing goal now, a modern goalie, that the net is in front of you. And if you're set on that and you know where your crossbar is because you've done your GoPro video from ice level and you really know where the net is in front of you, then you ultimately never turn back and try and open up space behind you by protecting the net behind you. You're always down, down in front. And if you're there, then just like I said earlier about tracking passes, you're very fast off your rebound because your weight is over the leading leg where you've just made contact down and you can build quickly. So talking to Ken about this, and he was fascinated. I'm fascinated to hear his stories from the 70s. And he said, absolutely, man. It was all about safety. I mean, think about it. If you're talking to me about the net in front of you, that net in front of me was 
just being guarded by, by my goal pads because I'm coming out so far on the angle and I'm just yeah. kicking them out and I'm playing hockey in like a mini net, the ones that yeah. the kids play yeah, in yeah. the hallways at hockey tournaments. So I bring that up to JD and I said, JD I had this conversation with Ken. He said, Steve, the first shot of the game is at my ear. The next one is on the ice. If you see a highlight where my feet are going up and down like this and I kind of fall backwards, yeah. I mean, we're all fighting the fear of injury. He yeah. was talking about a game where he had 14 welts on him, not bruises, Oof. but welts, where afterwards the doctor wants to see him the next day in Manhattan because he's worried about blood clotting and yeah. potential wow. maybe problems that he has internally and why he's bruising so significantly. Um, he said most of the game was just fear, you know, when you're wow. trying to manage the fear. Imagine. Yeah. And now we're padded up so much that now that's why we can play deep too, right, Jason? Like we can get down and play a little deeper because now my head, you wouldn't believe how frequently the goalies that I train get hit in the head because we're asking them on this shot to go here and make the save. Right. And when they close that space in front of them, their head is vulnerable, but it's well protected. You know, you and their head is in her head is in the target zone too, below the crossbar. But that's how mine always is. That's how Richter lost his career, though, with the skull fracture. I was covering that team a yeah. lot then, and yeah, yeah. And, you know, I haven't talked to Mike a lot about that, and we talk a lot because I have his kids on the ice with me, um, and they're great. Uh, Beanie and Tommy, two great kids. They shoot for me on the goalies, and uh, <laughs> they get the perspective of, and this is what a lot of the shooters should be doing. If you're a young hockey player, I would be working with a qualified goalie coach. Listen to everything he says, and then do the opposite and give yourself a chance to score because I, I help these guys all the time. You wouldn't believe the habits that they have now. Habits like keeping your feet moving through a release yeah. when you're coming through the funnel and then get the second chance because the first one I told you guys, they're not going in every level. You know, the, the interesting thing about stats for me is that I worked at Quinnipiac, so I've done it in the uh, full NCAA schedule. I've done it at the full U16 schedule with the uh, North Jersey Avalanche. I've done it uh, with Chicago Steel in the USHL, then the NHL. A breakaway is a breakaway. It goes in one every three times in every league. The only yeah. way it would change is if you put Henrik Lundqvist inside a U16 net. Yeah. You know, things would change, right? But yeah. um, hockey's hockey, guys, and screens yeah. go in as frequently as they do in the NHL as they do at the U16 level. And um, it, it's interesting that way. That, that part of this whole exercise – uh, which was once just an idea that became a company is really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The last thing I'll say to Steve, and then I'll, I'm going to be done, is he's right about the the shooter working with a goalie coach because I just interviewed Anton Lundell, who will probably go top 10 in the draft, maybe 12, 13. And I haven't even put out, I, I, I leaked it. I did, I bleeded, bled the article. I only did half, and I'm going to do the other half tonight. So I'm going to give away part of it here because Steve basically said it, but his dad is a goalie coach, Jan Lundell, over, over in Finland. And he did learn a lot about how to score from that. Because yep. I'd never had a kid interview with me and talk about that, how to break down a goalie as much as he has. And, and he's not a scorer by nature, but he could score because of it. Because no that, that can be developed. I talk about it with the teams that I coach, and I'm the goalie coach for our teams and high school teams when I coach Russell. And, and, and I always talk about it. I say, guys, let me explain to you when I feel uncomfortable as a goalie. Number one, if you take too long to shoot the puck, you're giving me all the data in the world. You're making it easy on me. Get it off your stick fast. And if you're moving across the, the, the slot, and you got to read where my weight is. And if I'm having to shuffle, 
shoot low because now I'm locked. You got to find yeah. those spots. And part of it is instinctual, but I think that stuff can be developed if you um, learn to read the body properly. No question. I do it all summer long. I'm not working yep. with a team full time during the season like you are, but uh, Mike Garman's a good friend of mine. Mike Garman is the goalie coach for the Chicago Steel. Chicago Steel broke every record out there this year scoring. Oh, they were unbelievable. Yeah. Mike Garman. Mike Garman is talking to the shooters all the time yeah. about how to make an exposure on, a, on the other goalie really feel like it's catastrophic. And it's there. I mean, there are so many drills that I can't do in a goalie practice because they will not make a save. But as soon as I let the shooters know that this is something they can do, they stretch it and they do it. And it's funny because especially when you're coming off the wings, um, there really isn't a chance in the modern game to just beat a goalie if you're going to try and snap one from distance. You're just not. Um, but there are specific places that you can shoot on a goaltender that create a rebound, whether it's right back to you or to the side. The key for me now is, is that the puck carrier has to get to the dot. Shooting for a rebound used to exist from everywhere in my day, but now it's the dot. You've got to get to the dot because now the goaltender is all in on the save and he's not going to be able to manage a rebound. And it's interesting to see the shooters. It's funny because we do a, uh, a warm-up where the players on the first set come off the walls and they shoot into the goalie's body. The second set, they shoot to score. And I still have the rebound guys there available. There's never any rebounds because everybody's trying to hit the corners. And it's yeah. just a piece and it goes off the glass and it's out of the play. But when I tell the players to shoot for rebounds, you wouldn't believe the amount of goals they score just by Try. having that mindset. But it's Puck not, on pad, right, Steve? Not from outside the dots, though. you got to get over the dot. Yeah, well, puck, Colangelo, on, puck on pad. <laughs> yeah, Colangelo, Farrell, and Brisson. Brisson will go in the first round. Those three guys will probably go in the top 50 in the draft for Chicago. Like, that's ask, where are that guy. Ask Brisson about Mike Garman when you have a chance to interview him. Right? Uh, I already interviewed him, but I will when I see him next time. Yeah. No, everybody raves about him, but he and I have had that dialogue, and we, okay. we do this together, and it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, there's, there's something there for the future of the game because, look, guys, when I go back to those Lundquist stories – it was tumbleweed at the other side of the ice. Lundqvist, myself, uh, usually Callahan, Dubinsky, Benoit Allaire. The other side of the ice, empty, right? After practice, 40 more minutes, guys getting off, doing their thing. But now you go to an NHL practice, skills coaches are out there. They're catching right. up. You know, they're catching up. The skill level's coming up. And uh, you see it with the amount of money the young guys are making now, early. Oh, yeah. Hey, Steve, you know, the great thing about this episode, and we appreciate all the time you've given us, is that this isn't just for goalies, because what people could have learned here today, if your kid plays at a youth level or is going to play collegiate or playing tier one, whatever, um, the information that you provided today uh, helps every player, in my opinion, because the game is simple. The game is about scoring goals and preventing goals. And that's all we've talked about here today. So I want to thank you so much. Uh, uh, the work you're doing uh, with, with ClearSight Analytics is just awesome. I love the stuff that you're doing, and I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this, and, and do me a favor and stay healthy. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jason. And Russ, finally get to connect with you, too. Yeah, appreciate you so much. it. That was fun. I could talk hockey all day long, fellas. Yeah, <laughs> we appreciate that, too. That is Episode 78 of the Stick to Hockey Podcast. Thanks for checking it out, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Episode 79.